we do it raw. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> okay, three, two, one. We're on. So, oh, uh, ro robot and the bear, robot and the bear, robot and the bear, robot and the bear. <laughs> so you know, um, for for those who were longtime listeners, you know, I'm I'm the the sound. The, I don't know. What was it? The jingle? I write. The, I wrote the jingle yeah. for, for the podcast. Wait, there, there, so Luke Chu has a song that's impromptu, and if you ask him to do it, he usually won't. So you have to be quiet, <laughs> and then Luke will actually in, will do the intro, and it's a song. Yeah, it's but, the, everybody. Um... This is Felicia Chow. Just so you know, Felicia, hey, Felicia. Chow is joining us here on Robot and the Bear podcast. Welcome, mm -hmm. Felicia. Hi. Do you have a Do you have an intro song for us? Maybe yours will just be better. Yeah. Oh no, I'm not musically gifted. You don't have to be musically gifted. I'm not musically gifted at all. I'm only good at one thing, and that's the only thing I do. Mm -hmm. Is drawing. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm I'm sure so, you're. I'm, uh, everything okay? Yeah, I'm just trying to up. Just just mix missing some levels, so we're all good. Okay. Sound so up? fully. Yeah. We're good. Okay, so uh, Felicia, from my understand, you hate podcasts. Um, I don't like hearing myself played back from anything. So I did like an NPR interview podcast, and I've never listened to it. What uh, what podcast did you do? Life Kit. Oh, okay. I, yeah. I yeah, that's one of those podcasts that like get promoted on. Uh, my NPR station, but I'm never really sure when it's on, and I only usually listen to NPR when I'm driving. So yeah, I I did an interview with them about getting punched in the face, uh, yeah. and bystander awareness, and I have not listened to it since. Oh my oh, god, wait, what happened? This happened did, yeah, did this happen to you? I think you mentioned this a long time ago. Yeah, but we don't have to start the podcast with trauma. Oh. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll bring it back up we'll circle back we'll circle back yes absolutely so well congratulations on your um your show the police currently has a show that's up right now at giant robot gallery on sawtell it's there called was... the new normal i mean that's like the most epic title ever right because here we are after all that <laughs> you know what i'm saying hmm Yes. What, what, tell, tell us a little bit about your show, please. Like, what uh, was there? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, like, what, like the, the title and did the, did, did the work kind of revolve around, you know, like, or was inspired by the events of, say, the past couple of years or? Um, in a way. So, new, the title came to me like two weeks ago when I had to come up with one, but, um, new normal. I, you hear it a lot post pandemic well, we're not out of the pandemic, but you hear it a lot about post-pandemic, like the new normal, but it's a phrase used after any major economic or socioeconomic crisis where uh, society has changed on like a larger whole, like you come out of a darkness and then there's a new normal. And the same time of the pandemic, I quit my job, I got put on proper meds, and I switched to watercolor for gallery work. So it was kind of like after all that tumult, you know, I came out the other end and this is now the new normal of mentally stable watercolor pieces. Um, mm -hmm. So that I thought it was kind of a fitting title because this was my very first all watercolor show as well. 
Mm. And so um, it, it was kind of a fitting title, just like after everything we all collectively went through and also like a, my life kind of followed that path as well. Now I feel like I'm out the other side and pretty stable. And hopefully mm. uh, that is the normal and I'm not just on a continued descent. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, the pieces weren't maybe directly related to the title. It was a lot of them were me learning how to use watercolor. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these uh, motifs and symbols are like familiar and yet a little bit new with the new medium. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you, um, like when it comes to uh, the, when it comes to watercolor, did you have to, like, there's a pretty steep learning curve uh, with, uh, with watercolor, at least from my experience, um, you know, depending on the kinds of techniques that you're employing uh, with watercolor. Did you feel like, is this a medium that you've had a history with or? Um... No. So all of my work is typically Copic marker on brown toned paper. Mm -hmm. um, Copic markers are alcohol based markers and they're used a lot for drafting and design. And that's um, my old job was an industrial designer. But in high school, you know, I did high school art and we did pastels and color pencils and paints. And so I have like while I'm not necessarily the best at any of those things, I have an understanding of the quality of different mediums. And I feel like as any artist, you kind of have already a built up knowledge of skill and maybe a new medium isn't something you're gonna understand right away, but you're not starting with nothing. And I use watercolors in a very different way because I'm trying to mimic my marker drawings. Mm. markers aren't archival and so my prices are getting to a place where you, you probably want the piece to last so um i i'm switching to watercolor not because i want watercolor but because it's the closest to markers in visual uh style and so i uh i i did a contract project for google where i designed a mural for uh, this thing on campus and i didn't use any of their material budget because i just had everything i needed so my friend who brought me in used the material budget to, she does watercolor. Uh, her name's Whitney, bye, thank you, Whitney. She bought all the stuff I needed to start with. So I didn't have to do any research. Mm. And um, when I started playing with the watercolors, I just treated them like markers where I mixed all the colors in jars with certain amounts of water to be the exact opacity I needed. Mm. And so then I had all these jars of paint with different water dilutions and I just used it like marker on paper. So um, the biggest struggle was finding paper that I liked and that wouldn't warp too much and that would take the color the way I needed it to. But I used to I used to do acrylic paint and I've done some oil painting. So like mixing colors isn't the hardest. Um, it's just annoying. So I think my biggest struggle <laughs> is uh, markers. I can't they dry so fast. They're like a quick medium and I can work for five hours straight without stopping. And with watercolor, I have to paint a layer and then press it and then paint another layer and press it so it doesn't buckle. Mm. So it forces me to take breaks and I don't know how to take breaks. So mm. now I have two desks where I'll work on a watercolor and I'll press it and I'll roll over to the other desk and I'll work on a different drawing and back and forth. Um, yeah. She's just trying to, so that means by saying buckling, you just it's not having ripple on the paper from the water. That, that's yeah. what you mean, right? Yeah. So watercolor paper still ripples, which is really annoying. And I tried all these different samples and my marker work, I use Strathmore's tone tan paper. And I realized after like weeks of trial and error that Strathmore sells a heavyweight version of their tone tan paper and it takes watercolor really well and it doesn't buckle in the same way. It does a little bit still, but um, yeah. So a lot of these paintings in the show are actually all my watercolor tests. 
Oh, okay. So are you, you know, getting, um, are you figuring out the gradations, like how to gra do the gradations that you kind of get with markers with watercolor? Um, I can do them. I, I wasn't really an issue figuring out how you, with watercolor, the easy thing is you just keep adding more water and um, you can do a really light wash to see if it looks right. And then you can either keep layering it or add in a bit more paint. So I, I actually, watercolor wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. Um, there's some pros and cons to it, but, uh, it's actually, I feel like markers are harder to get, it, uh, like what I've been doing with them, but I've been using them for 10 years. So with that experience of how that medium works, transferring it to another one, when my, I have an end goal, I want the watercolor to look this way. And I have my marker colors that already set my palette. So I'm not making up any new colors. So in a way, I think watercolor is actually easier than the markers. Cool. Are you well? Hmm. Uh, you, know, mean you can cover more. You can, but you can cover more ground with watercolor, right? Then you can markers. get a larger sheet of color yeah. put down faster, but then you got to wait for it to dry. Ah, uh, it's always a give and take. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Damn it. You know, the, when I when I heard watercolor, I was reminded of a conversation that we had with a previous guest, Rob Sato, and um, he um what he was telling uh, at least what I gathered from our conversation was he, when he, he used to be an oil painter and he, tr when he transitioned uh, to uh, watercolor, he did it because one of the reasons, one of the reasons why he did was because, because of the, the nature of watercolor um, it is kind of a, it's a frenetic medium. It has a tendency of being kind of chaotic um, and, it forced him to loosen up. It forced him to kind of like learn to like work with quote unquote mistakes. Um, did you, have you felt anything kind of similar uh, with your experiences? I have such a strong need for control that uh, I made it work the way I needed it to. <laughs> so uh, I have not accepted the, I, I know there's like the quality people use where they do washes and they let the paint bleed and you can kind of see the diffusion between water and paint. Absolutely not. Um, I <laughs> did so many tests and trials. Like I, I'll wet the paper first and then I'll have pre-mixed opacity and I'll layer it over in one really quickly to figure out how to make it have no brush strokes. Mm. Um, a lot of alcohol marker based drawings. Actually, if you look at drafting drawings, you see marker streaks. They, you know, there's a lot of mark streaks and I have absolutely none in my work. I blend everything out. Um, so I think there's a, like, I've already been spending my whole life trying to get rid of like mark making. And so with the watercolor, um, I was uh, unwilling to uh, let it do what it's supposed to do. So I don't necessarily think I'm doing it right. I didn't take any lessons. I didn't look up any tutorials. I didn't look at other artists work because I wasn't trying to mimic watercolor work. Mm. um so it's, it's, it's mimicking markers so it's just funny right yeah, um, it's, yeah. Like, it's like it's almost like the opposite way or something different but uh it's that's pretty awesome markers in the way i use them which is also not the normal way to use those markers because you're trying not to show the streaks a marker streak i guess you would say right mm -hmm. or a gradation of a marker that shows streaks because uh -huh. every time i see people with copic drawings you could really see the you know i don't know how to, the strokes of the pen but, but yeah you're trying not to do that yeah. That's so funny. I've already been doing that with markers where you're also not really, it, people like it because they can show the streaks. 
but I really like soft colors. So I'll take a lot of white colors and I'll layer and I'll blend and I'll saturate the page to like my hand isn't really seen in it. So a lot of people think my sketchbook work look like prints or like digital work because they can't see the, the little imperfections or like little ha handmade, um, you know, marks. Um, I don't know why I do that, but that, yeah, that's how I've been working the whole time. That's... I'm, I'm noticing this time you're also using different color paper, right? Like instead of just that one toned paper, I'm, I saw, there's a pink, for example. So I, uh, when I first started painting a lot, like 90% of watercolor options, paper options are white and I don't work on white paper. Um, so there's very limited toned papers in the watercolor world. And my friend got me like linen based paper pads from a, a, a tiny shop in London um, called Choosing Keeping. And she also bought me a, a pink toned, like lighter pink toned watercolor pad that she could find. And so a lot of these paintings were just tests on those different papers to see what felt good. Mm -hmm. um, and it was fun. I, I ended up, like I said, going back to Strathmore Tone Tan because I found a heavier weight paper. So I will continue to use the same paper I've been using, but I did experiment with a couple different colors. The pink? Yeah, so <laughs> that, that clover painting, it's on a piece of paper that's like ham pink. It's very bright pink. And so I did a almost fully green painting on it because they're opposite colors and um, was able to make the, cause the green watercolor paints that you can buy straight out of the tube are a little too minty green, a little too bright. And I like more of a moss green, more subtle tones. And so when you actually can make a mossier green on pink paper, it, it makes it look less pink and it also makes the green look more um, mellow. So it's, it's a bit of color theory, uh, uh, going into play there so that was kind of a tester but the pink paper was fun I don't know if I'll be using a bunch of different color papers in future but um, this was a learning phase couldn't you like since most watercolor, watercolor paper is white couldn't you just like tone the paper itself as um, in the beginning and then you have a little more even more control over the uh, you know the appearance of the you know, the, the, the materials. Yeah, but you risk the paper buckling more when you do a full wash over the whole thing. So you're already starting yeah. with more wrinkles. And yeah. um, I, unless you do a lot of layers, I, I see colors in layers. So I don't see just one color. I see a color on top of white. So there's mm. still a brightness that comes through under a paint that you wouldn't get in a toned paper. Mm. And the Strathmore toned tan is actually a bunch of compressed fibers. So you get almost like a film grain in the paper texture along with the brown color. And I think that's a pretty uh, like solid thing in all of my work is always that kind of, I think a lot of people say my work gives them a lot of nostalgia, kind of like a warmth. And I think it's from the paper. Right. So um, I did try doing a couple washes on white paper, but it was still too bright and it, it didn't look strong enough. And then you're painting on top of more paint. And I just wanted to reduce the amount of layers that had to happen. Mm. Yeah. Right. I was, yeah, I, I guess, you know, like when I think of like, I, you know, when it comes to like, you know, putting washes on paper, I kind of always imagine like, if you depending on like, you know, how heavy you go in there, and how big of a sheet of paper you go, um, you're using, you can be able to like trim away a lot of the, uh, um, the most buckled parts. 
and you know to find a but then it's also kind of wasteful right you know like you, you get a huge like a full-size sheet which is what like i don't know two foot by three foot sheet of paper and you tone you know you tone the entire sheet of paper and you try and like find the flat parts and but you know then you're kind of like probably will get two or three things out of like one sheet of paper and then you're trashing the rest of it so anyways yeah. Also, yeah. there's no way to completely flatten so maybe i'll have a piece of paper pressed for a day and it'll mm -hmm. be flat but if you leave it out at room temperature with whatever normal humidity it'll still start to bend a little bit mm. and uh it's flat enough that when i frame it with a mat it lays flat but um, even if you were to wash a whole sheet and then cut out a flat part, when you cut it out, the edges are going to come up anyways over time. So it's kind of wasted effort. Um, and yeah, I just, uh, I really, I think that the Strathmore Tone Tan is my basis for all my color work as well, because how I do shading, how I do lighting is based off of that brown shade where I bought other successively lighter brown markers to add depth without adding color. So oh. I think a lot of my color work is also based around using that. So if I started on white and then I toned it, I think it already, everything would be just slightly off if I mixed a too much brown or too much red or something in, in the toning. So um, yeah, I think, yeah, the biggest issue was paper, but I've solved it now. So mm -hmm. the, the largest paintings in the show, um, the two uh, pieces, one is two rooms and one is a large figure. Those are all on large sheets of Strathmore Tone Tan. And they are the more flat, more marker-looking pieces. Before we go on about your uh, your current work, did you go to school for this? Did you go I went to RISD for industrial design. Mm. So I um I went to I studied industrial design and I was kind of in in the wood and metal machine shops. I did a lot of machining. I built furniture and toys and stuff. And I, I thought I was going to be a toy designer for the rest of my life because I interned for three months. Hmm. And uh, then I graduated, did toys for about five months and got put on a food uh, consultancy team hmm. and ended up doing that for about six years. Food consultancy. So I worked at a consultancy called IDEO and they have different studios. They had different studios and one was called the food studio. So any clients like Nestle or big food companies, uh, smuggers or whatever would come for design consultancy work, we would handle those projects. So I did a lot of food packaging and experience and environmental stuff. Hmm. Um, you, you know that, that, that cheese, Luke, that comes in that red disc? That little oh yeah, yeah the um, she almost got to do something with that. What were you gonna do? I did a, I did a baby belt cheese project, but I don't think anything ever came out of it. Like like was that to reimagine that or redesign? It, it was or, to or help with their sustainability within their packaging. Because mm. it's plastic. Well, so right? it's a cheese wheel uh, dipped in wax, and mm. then they're put in net plastic bags. That's it. Okay. So they sit horribly on the shelf because they're just piles. And the plastic netting is awful. And it uh, there was just a lot of questions on like, how can we keep their brand and their iconic packaging, but like with more sustainable. Without killing seals or whatever it does. Yeah, you know, the like seal trapping like turtles. Yeah. Mm. So that was a short project. That was one of the last things I did before I quit. <laughs> mm. And were you just doing uh, artwork on the side or like yeah i've always drawn my whole life and then like in high school i finished my first sketchbook from front to back and i was like 
so proud of myself. You know, you're like, I, I did something. And then I, I decided I wanted to fill a sketchbook a year because I do finished drawings on each page. It's not like loose sketches. So um, I cannot do one a year because I have reality set in, but I, I've always been drawing and it was my only like stress relief because, you know, Asians, we don't believe in therapy and we don't talk about stuff. So uh, I, I would, I would draw a lot. That was my outlet. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I started posting on Tumblr early uh, 2000s just to track my own progress. Right. And it kind of blew up a bit there when Tumblr was still a thing. And mm -hmm. then I got Instagram when my friends all had it in college. And I, I'm super private. And I was like, there's nothing I want to post about my life. Mm -hmm. So I ended up just posting art there too. Um, mm -hmm. But there wasn't really a goal in mind. Mm -hmm. So it's been going this whole time. Like I would go to work nine to five-ish you know, go to the gym, come home, cook dinner, take a nap till midnight, draw until 4am, go back to bed, get up at eight, go to work. Um, wow. Uh, yeah, I did that for a couple of years. It was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, um, yeah, that's life. <laughs> that's, yeah, then, uh, then, <laughs> but that, that all comes out in the subject matter of all the drawings, right? Suffering. Yeah, a little bit or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just something I would draw until I died. Like, I, I didn't major in illustration in college because I knew I was going to draw anyways. Like, I can't teach myself industrial design. I can't teach myself woodworking, but I'm going to be drawing anyway. So why would I take college classes for it? Um, oh. It wasn't ever supposed to be a career. Um, and I, I thought I was just going to, do the corporate nine to five till I'm like old and then maybe I'll try art. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was a year where my uh, art money tripled my day job salary and I realized I didn't have to work so hard. Um, so I was a bit nervous doing it full time, but like life's been great. So I'm glad it happened. When did it go full time? I quit my job January, 2022. So it's been about a year and a half. Mm. Yeah, but I was I, I did three solo shows in 2020. I was like starting to do all this stuff with a day job and um, not really knowing where it was going. So uh, it was kind of scary. I mean, like you, you've been told, like, go to school, get into a good college, find a well-paying job, you know, be stable. Mm -hmm. And I did all of that. And suddenly I was just jumping off a cliff where I'm like, well, I think I can actually sustain myself through the Internet. <laughs> um mm -hmm. And so I quit 2022 and um, I've never been happier. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's also kind of stressful, don't you think? Uh, the Being self-employed? Yes. Oh, yeah. I always kind of, I'm sorry, uh, you were saying? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was stuff that makes you grow up real fast because you have to figure out health insurance and taxes and different IRAs and all that stuff that come with not having a corporate job. Like my 401k now is like transferred over and all these things they don't tell you and all the stuff that your job covers for you that you don't really think about suddenly I had to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, and no one, I thought in the dream world that I would just get to make art, but now I'm just doing a lot of like taxes and emails. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm I'm laughing with you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm laughing at it too because I'm just like yeah, I always I always kind of feel like that um 
the the art you know biz at least you know at you know the levels that like maybe we are at are is just a gamble it's like you're constantly gambling um you're you invest a bunch of time into creating stuff you know maybe with the intention of like showing or with the intention of selling and you know whether or not the it, it moves or not you know it's it, it becomes kind of hard to predict and i have a little more stability where um i my whole career is based off of largely royalties so over the years while at work, I set up royalty deals with different companies that pay me out every month or every few quarters or whatever. And yeah. I make enough in royalties to pay all my bills and, you know, um, all the stuff from galleries and sales of originals and all of those are bonus. So I can stress less about if something sells or not. Mm. Um, you know, royalties do have slow months where they dip and it still depends on people needing to like your work and buying stuff, but I have like seven royalty streams at this point. Mm. So, um, if something is low, hopefully something else picks up on the other end and like, I can come to LA for the, a week and not do any work at all and still get paid out at the end of the month. Um, so that's a, that's a pretty big relief. And I think that I had a dream that one day I would make so much in royalties that I could just stop talking to people and like re retreat from society and just get money in the mail every month. And I would just mind my own business in like the woods or something. So mm -hmm. that's where I'm heading. <laughs> I hope you get there. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Wait, how many, Um, I mean, at the same time, how many art pieces have you made that you haven't haven't sold i mean there's not that many i've never gotten anything back from a show and i'm on show Ow. five or six so okay hope we're not the first but okay <laughs> awesome um yeah i mean even if it doesn't pre-sell um usually by the time the show comes down everything's been sold but uh i was told by someone that i need to increase prices per show until they don't all instantly sell out if it takes longer to sell, then I'm apparently in the right price range. That makes sense. I mean, and again, I'm sure. able to gamble on show pricing because I have my royalties. So it's not like I need to price it lower to make sure I can pay the bills. Yeah. Yeah. But no, yeah. you got to keep, you got to keep with your, you got to keep with your rate that you're normally going at. That's always a difficult thing, right? Like pricing art, it just, man, that's it, just always difficult. It feels so arbitrary. That, that too, that too feels like a gamble. Like when you're doing it, it's like, uh, should I raise it by, you know, whatever it is, 5%, 10% or whatever it may be. It's always feels, that always feels like a gamble. Cause you're thinking, Oh, maybe this is the price that, you know, what do you call it? Is that thing that breaks the camel's back or whatever you want to call it. It's like, is this the line that I crossed? That's like, oops, the oops line, you know? Yeah. That's always, it's always like a, a worry of any sort. It, it happens with everything, but you know, no matter it's what, but that's, hard because I've started doing larger pieces but they look the same on Instagram so or on an online store, right? So yeah. suddenly the prices are going up because the sizes are going up, but it, everyone thinks my work is still like nine by 12 or something, even though it's getting larger. And then I was like, does the price increase because now I'm using archival watercolors over marker, but they look mm -hmm. like marker. So suddenly there's a price increase for not that much of a visual differentiation. Um, yeah. And then also my marker work is still better than my watercolor work because I've only been doing watercolor for under a year. 
And so then does that make it cheaper? Or does that make it more expensive because it's now the, the medium going forward? And no one can tell me yes or no on anything, right? So I just have to think about it and throw out a number and see if it sells. Yeah, but I goes, I mean, I always think the same thing on a micro scale, you know, oh, I switched t-shirt brands, another giant robot t-shirt, should I add a dollar or $2 to a t-shirt? It's just like that, you know, it's like on a yeah. micro scale, it's the same way. It's like, oh, this shirt's a little bit better than the last one. Are people going to notice the difference? No. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. And also not, so. I would never pay my own prices for my work. And <laughs> My Asian family, the background in engineering and, you know, uh, uh, accounting, like they don't understand why someone would pay that much for artwork. Um, and so it's really hard to judge, like, is it really worth that much money? And also, even if someone buys it for that price, does that actually mean it's worth that much money? Like sometimes I make pieces that I don't think are that great. And then they sell for a really high price. And I'm always a little surprised. And I'm like, I could price it cheaper because I just don't think it's worth that much. But then there's also, I like money. So, you know, kind of finding the balance there is a bit tough. Well, it's all kind of, I always kind of feel like it's dictated by like size, uh, name, uh, recognition. Uh, does it contain the elements that you're kind of like known for? Um and, you know, like, and just the general strength of the piece itself, like, you know, you, you look at it, you know, not as the artist, but as maybe say, like, from Eric's uh, position, you know, he, you know, like, like I always kind of feel like the, 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 you know, everyone's gambling, right, on the, uh, on an art show, the artist is gambling by, you know, creating a body of work, and then the gallery is gambling because they're investing you know, three to five weeks of their space um, to like showcase this work and, and to, you know, to sell it. And then, um, and so like you, I, I, I usually kind of feel that it's good for like both the artist and the gallery to kind of negotiate a price. Um, and, and like if the gallery looks at the body of work and goes like, okay, well, these are the strongest pieces and these are great pieces, but we know these are going to be like quote unquote sure sales, then, you know, we could price these up. We could price these in an, a middle range or whatever. Eric always tells me to sell it for more. Yes. Every single time. <laughs> My <laughs> biggest struggle is I have pieces that take a lot of technical skill, a lot of thought and time. I build it all out, you know, and it's this beautiful piece. And yet people lose their minds for this stupid pigeon I've drawn that has the uh, the f word i don't know if we're allowed to swear on this um yeah, curse. yeah it just says fuck <laughs> and it's a it's a stupid pigeon and it's made me like six figures in prints and merchandising sales and like it's you know, pretty great i i'll spend 30 hours on a room drawing and all the stuff that goes into it and all the skills that i've learned over the years and everyone's like that's nice but then they lose their minds for the pigeon like 30 people have gotten it tattooed where like people are buying it all the prints are selling out and it's like that's very I can draw it in 30 minutes um, and it'll, well, that's, the, that's the power of the meme, right? right? Like you've, you've created like a meme worthy kind of image that like community that transcends, you know, the, you know, the power of technical strength and just kind of resonates with, you know, the absurd, 
because it's a fucking pigeon, you know, with the word fuck over it. And like, those are things that like, you just don't usually put together, but when you put it together, you know, in a almost poetic kind of way, no, in a poetic kind of way, like people kind of go like, I have never seen anything like that. And I feel that. And I need to like have that around me to remind me of just what a fucked up world I live in and how glorious it is in its fuckery. But then the question is, do you <laughs> price it more because it's popular, but it took less effort to make versus pieces that, you know, you sink a lot of time and skill into and maybe are less popular? Yes. Because we... <laughs> yes. <laughs> Give them what they the want. Yeah, um, you, I mean, like, well, here's the thing, like, right, like, you know, the, 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 the fuck pigeon is kind of like a lightning in a bottle situation, right? Like you, like when in the, you, I, I'm imagining that when you drew it and you, you created, it, you did it just, you know, for shits and giggles, you know, it was just like, it was something fun for you. It was just like, oh, this is ridiculous and lovely and like kind of illustrates a, a particular place in the time that I am in my life. You know, and then, you know, and, and you put it out there and people like see it and they go and like, it's it's hard to, it's hard to predict. I, 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 you know, speaking for myself, I did a painting, uh, fucking, uh, for Eric's anniversary show. Um, like it was the first thing I ever showed at fucking giant robot. And it was a painting I did called soundtrack to uh, soundtrack to my life. Soundtrack and, to my life. Yeah, and I fucking cashed in on that thing like a motherfucker, <laughs> you know. And I think that, and there's nothing wrong with that. And um, you know, and you know, because like you know, as an artist, your goal is to kind of grow and to progress and to like challenge yourself and to you know move forward and to see like where things are, you know, you know, to, you know, to see, to see what you're 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 capable of. Um, but like when you have those little memeable moments, like, you know, you just got to be able to appreciate the fact that like, hey, this is something that, you know, people like, you know, you're you're doing something that your other work maybe isn't necessarily, you know, doing, but like it is an accumulation of life and experience that's just as valid as everything else. It just... Uh... Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, it just reminded me of Death Peace Son. Same thing. He yeah, too just makes has, me, a, I mean, like, he has I, a bat. A bat that says fuck, right? Yeah. I like the most the popular thing. I get that it has a time and place, but I get people that come up to me now and they're like, oh my God, you're the pigeon artist. And it's like, but I do so much more. You know? And like the things I work on and what I developed and how I've like the materials and all of that is just passed over for this bird. <laughs> that's that's gonna happen. You know, I'm still searching for my first meme. So we're searching. Searching's the wrong word, but yeah. And like the I mean, I really appreciate it because it's paid a lot of bills, but like the the fandom that has grown from it. Um, people will go to like I sell prints on Society Six. And maybe there's like five or six pigeon prints on there of different kinds. And they will buy the entire set, frame them all and have them like across their living room. Wall. Multiple people will, they, like, they have to buy all of them. I've stopped posting them because it's kind of like too much to keep making that thing. But, um, you know, Nucleus Portland made a tufted rug with it. 
and we've got sticker sheets and we've got pins and um, next year we're releasing a vinyl figurine of it and um i i like i totally like love the support but i don't fully understand the fanaticism behind it and it's kind of hard to uh again when we were you know talking about pricing and stuff like i know people will pay more for it but it's not really worth that much so am i charging more just to make more money or should i price it at what i think it's worth and just work with that i don't know what do you think luke <laughs> well like, here's the thing right like when you when you created it like you like you, 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 when you create things, you just don't know whether or not they're going to, like, you know, you know, resonate that way. Like you, you like when you when you when when you first created it, did you like know like oh this is this is going to be like you know a top forty hit? I made it during the twenty sixteen election phase, <laughs> and I have a top Patreon tier where they get a three by three original drawing every month. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I do lighter work, sillier things on them because they're small. And I, for a long time in a lot of my room and outdoor drawings, I would draw a little pigeon on the side with a drink. It was always just like a small reoccurring character. And I, all the comments would be like, oh my God, I love the pigeon. Like, where's the pigeon? And so for the Patreon rewards, I just drew them really big. And then I mm -hmm. added the block because we, it was like the Biden Trump election and like the internet was like rotting and um, you know, it was just like a, a tough time. And I think it resonated with a lot of people. So I, I didn't think it would blow up the way it did, but I knew a lot of people would enjoy it because mm -hmm. I also, before I had so many followers would write like more opinionated things in my captions. And mm -hmm. like, I was a little bit more active. Like I'd tell people to go vote. I'd have more like, social justice information. Um, and so that was kind of all in this phase of time. Um, mm -hmm. And the pigeon was kind of the image that was there for me to use the platform because, you know, Instagram is like an image-based platform. Mm -hmm. And so it got picked up from there. And yeah, it was just a, a Patreon doodle. And I didn't think, I, I like, again, I knew it would be, it would do well online, like likes wise, but mm -hmm. I didn't think people would start tattooing them on themselves. Uh, the um but the, well so like i i i don't know I, I i mean is the question like you know should you like continue feeding that monster or not or is it um like you know and and cash in on it or are you um like I mean, like, what do you, I, I don't really quite understand. I, I don't know, like, how to answer the, the kind of question. Like, should you I don't know if there's pricing a... it up? Mm -hmm. uh, I just, I don't want to be like an edgelord where I'm like, y'all like it, so I'm not going to do it anymore, you know? Um, but I'm also not going to do it because it's the popular thing. So I have taken a step back from making new ones. I still draw the pigeon in the background because, like, you know, it's a fun character. But uh, mm -hmm. I think my biggest conflict is just, like, where do I want to be as an artist and how do I want people to perceive my work? And like, is all my effort and development and skill building and background reduced to like background noise because I've got cute fat animal drawings? Um, and how does that make me feel? You know, um, this, 
that 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 because that, that that's a, a um a, a thing you know like the issue of technical skill and you know the and effort you know and how it resonates with the audience is something that i've always kind of personally like you know have wrestled with simply because of the fact that um so my background is graphic design i went and i did advertising um when I was straight out of college and the thing they hammered into me was the idea that like you have a passive audience you need to sell an idea in like the 2.3 seconds you know you have for a passive audience and so you know my work has always been quick reads and it, you know it's great for me because i don't have to like you know push myself to do things that i don't want to do you know and um you know but the thing is is that like with you like i was i was looking at i think it was the first drawing in the show on the left wall and it's the drawing with all the stairs you know going up and i was looking at it and i was thinking to myself I would hate creating that. <laughs> it, it, looking at it makes me feel pain because of just how clean and technical and even and the symmetry and everything like that. It just, it doesn't, just thinking about it now just sends chills down my spine. <laughs> and um, I think that, like, you know, like I, I, I'm, I often ask myself, like, does putting that much work? into something to an audience that's just if you're lucky you're going to get more than five seconds out of them um is it worth it i and, never drawn with my audience in mind um mm. i make art because i really like the process mm. and i used to before i was on meds you know brains a little bit of a chaotic soup and being able to focus on technical skill mapping out a staircase, drawing repetitive patterns, making everything in the right perspective was a way for me to be able to get into that flow state and only think about what I'm drawing. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't really care about the finished piece and what happens to it after. If I had a good time making it, then it's a good piece no matter what it looks like. Um, and so for me, it's more about what is a more consuming thing I can do to have more hours in the day where my brain's not on. Um, mm -hmm. And so the stairs are kind of a bitch. Uh, I forget every single time how I map perspective and I have to, I took a photo of all the pencil scaffolding I've done on one set of stairs. And I have to mm -hmm. keep going back to that to remember where to put all the points, but mm -hmm. I, I enjoy that kind of thing. Mm. I think my work stands out purely sometimes on patience because I make drawings with uh, like thousands of flowers that took hours to do that. I know a lot of people would get sick of doing, but I'm able to just push through. Mm. And it's because I, I like the process of doing really complicated drawings. Mm. That's great. I have a it, you know, it takes all kinds. Your, yeah. You have a, the, the, the stick person character. Is there ever more than one in a scene? There are drawings with separate rooms that have a figure in each room. But it might be the same person or same. In my mind, it is the same singular character represented at different times or in different moods. It could be two moods on one page, but it's not two different characters. Is there ever two different characters on one page? I have done some work for Dirty Bird Records in the Bay Area where they had 
Um, they, they get an artist resident every year and that artist does all the album covers for their, all their artist releases. So I did a bunch of album covers for like a bunch of different DJs and stuff. And, um, sometimes the, the song title that they gave me or the album title they gave me lended to a theme outside of my normal narrative. So there is one drawing. I can't remember what the title track was called, but it's a circle of multiple of the characters all looking at their phones. Um, and I, I guess you could consider that more than one, but it might be just that character in time still on their phone in a, in a circle. So it's hard to say. I had some drawings in earlier sketchbooks where there's groupings of them, like carrying something large or holding flowers and tipping things. And I guess that is more than one, but because it's a stick figure, it really doesn't matter who they are or how many there are or what. I typically draw them alone, but I think that's just because I live alone and I don't go out very much. And like, I, I'm not representing social scenes. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of Kogi Pan? Bread? It's a character. Yeah, it's like a bread character with a mm -hmm. face. Yeah. Yeah, my friend, uh, I, I was showing my friend your uh, your work and she was like, oh, that reminds me of Kogi Pan. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so <laughs> I had to, I looked it up. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. There's a, you know, I could see like how the, um, you know, like these some of the um, maybe potential inspiration could have, um, you know, led that way. But I was, I was just curious, um, like if you like, you know, when you designed your character, like, you know, was it, um like inspired by anything like specific like um or because obviously there's you know a lot of you know differences in terms of proportions and um but it's also like how they, they share the similar kind of like very like um blank or i'm, I'm trying I'm trying to think of the word i can't think of the word but it's you know it it feels like a uh a like Open, like an open-ended kind of you know design that or a neutral design that is interacting with the environments that you've created yeah a lot of my work even if it's super dense if you look at the individual objects like a book or a flower pot it's a symbol of that item reduced to as least lines as I can use mm -hmm. so like um I I strip away as much information as possible so like instead of drawing like a realistic apple that might be lumpy, I draw what you would consider in your mind at that time, the icon of an apple, because that's how it reads to people. And so when I first started drawing this character, it was a little bit more human. It was bald still, but it had more human facial features. And I didn't want it to have an identity because once you give it any kind of hair or clothing or color, it gives it an identity, right? It starts to make it into a character. It starts to give it a background story. And so I just kept stripping away elements like a real nose and like body parts and like proportions until it was just what I consider to be the simplest representation of a humanoid thing. So I, mm. I never really needed it to be, I didn't want it to be me and I didn't want it to be its own character. Like people have like their original characters that they make. I, I just wanted it to be like, there's a human presence interacting with this space because if you see a room with sunlight on the wall, you're like, cool. But then you put a person in the sunlight and suddenly there is a moment that is happening and an emotion people may have when they've had similar environmental experiences within their rooms. 
And so it makes it easy for people to project themselves into this character because it's not like it has long black hair or it wears like short shorts or something that maybe someone wouldn't wear. Um, and it's more about just like being able to have a figure in any of the pages that you can imagine yourself in that space. Because mm -hmm. um, some, you know, humans are such empathetic creatures that you see uh, a character in a sad space or a happy space and you kind of project your uh, history and your feelings and your experiences into that. Mm -hmm. And so I could do the exact same drawings without any characters and it loses like all the narrative and all the stuff that makes my work stand out. Mm -hmm. um, in one of my sketchbooks, I drew a top down one per point perspective view of my apartment because I just, I really like my apartment. I wanted to map all my things and I didn't put any characters in it. And I haven't posted it because there's just like, I mean, it means something to me because it's my apartment. Um, mm -hmm. But there's nothing going on in that drawing. There's nothing to focus on. There's no story. There's not like a point of view of like, is it a happy space? Is it a sad space? So the character mm -hmm. is like, yeah, it's genuinely, I tell people it's a stick figure. I think mm -hmm. the only definitive feature it does have is that it's a lighter skin tone, um, mm -hmm. which I, I'm, I don't worry too much about. But I did have someone who's reposted a lot of my artwork, but have photoshopped the character with brown skin. Mm. And I was like, you know, whatever helps you relate to it, I guess. But it's not mm. meant to have any defining features. How about the shadow? But ultimately, it's not you. It's not me, but it. If it's it, you. It's not me, but it has similar feelings and projections and things I'm experiencing. Um, yeah. The blob is that what you said? Yeah, the blob or the shadow or. So, I have oh. ideas. And uh, whenever my anxiety is really bad, it makes my stomach worse. And in college, I was I first drew it inside the figure's body, like a, a cubby hole cut out with the blob, and it's a stomach. And mm -hmm. so when I'm having bad days, I would draw it the stomach because it's got its little teeth clenching because I've got TMJ and my teeth are always locked. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I did it as a stomach, but also I just wanted contrast. Um, I needed elements on a page that could offer contrast which is where a lot of my characters come in. Like the pink worm is just for contrast. People keep asking me what it means. Mm -hmm. um, and then I- that's, started... a, that, that, that's like a, is that a bad feeling character? Like a bad, bad kind of like a cloud or a- In a way it represents like anxiety and some depression. Um, so, because like they're all interlocked. You can't, you know, like people have multitudes of things going on. So when my anxiety or depression or something was really bad, my stomach would hurt. And so it's kind of a representation of like a mental illness um, or just negative feelings. But I drew it enough that I think at one point my mom thought it was a cat for some reason. And I thought it was really funny. So I started drawing it in rooms and like on the bed or under the bed or on a stool as just like a, almost like a cat kind of in the background. But it also kind of represented like I'm having a bad day. Mm. Um, and the character would get bigger when it is having like a really bad day and it would kind of shrink one of my days are good, but it never, you know, your mental is never truly is gone. Mm -hmm. And I kind of see it as like, now it's outside of the character's body and it kind of hangs out, but they've like learned to mutually coexist. And it's almost like a comfort thing now. It's like a familiar friend. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, you do represent the bad emotions, but at the same time, especially on meds, once again, I have learned to deal with them. And so it's not like they're gone, but they're there and that's okay. Mm. Um, and so it's only when it's back in the stomach being represented there or shown really large is when it's like, I'm having a rough time, yeah. but it's just kind of a, a thing for me. It's almost like a diary because I used to only draw in my sketchbook. So 
I could flip through older drawings and remember when I was having like a rough month or when something had happened. And I can kind of see that represented by my drawings and how I place the characters. But a lot of people have applied like their different experiences to it. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong if it works for them. So sure. uh, yeah, a lot it, in general, a lot of people talk about mental illness. And I think for me, that's largely an anxiety blob, but you know, a couple other subtleties mixed in. There's one image in the show that's, it's pretty big, right? Yeah. The, yeah. the large <laughs> one with the body decaying. Yeah. That one's pretty yeah. big. Uh, I was bloated for like three weeks straight and I was convinced I'd gained weight and I felt disgusting. And I was like, every, you know, my whole body was just kind of off. And so I drew that piece for that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, we that one's sold, right? No, that one's still available. Oh, that one's not? The uh, the one with the ladder, the other big one. That oh, also that one. Kind of big blob, that one's gone. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of. Okay, there's another one. But yeah, maybe it'll be the first one I get back. Oh wow! <laughs> Actually, that's my favorite piece in the show. So, thank that's, you. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's um, yeah, I I kind of yeah yeah that one that one really like spoke to me. You know, kind of like the internalizations and whatever kind of metaphor you know yeah uh, you want to yeah you uh you want to use, but yeah, I I liked that you know, the composition and the idea, the general narrative of that. But, you know, I'm all about that internalized pain thing. So yeah, you got to push it down. <laughs> I think my friend had a metaphor. It's like uh, when you have housemates and you all have a communal trash can and no one wants to take the trash out. So you just keep compacting it. Um, you know, that, you know, that bag can hold more. Yeah. Yeah. And so can, <laughs> so can we handle with our emotions? Just push it down. <laughs> So uh, what 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 have you got coming up? And that's a terrible question to ask a person when they just finished, uh, you know, just had their solo show. But you know, oh I no, I mean, nice my way of wrapping things up. The 2025. So I have a mini show in Portland in September. Mm -hmm. um, they have a big new gallery, but there's a walk inlet that can hold maybe like eight to ten pieces or less. I don't know. Mm -hmm. See, so I'm making work for that, and that's in September. Um, I think I have to check emails, but I believe High Fructose is doing a group show of artists they've featured in previous magazines. So I'll be sending them a piece. And then we're trying to release a coloring book by the end of the year with uh, Harmon Projects, that group. They have mm -hmm. Paragon books. Um, and then early next year, we will have the uh, pigeon vinyl for the toy figurine. Uh, and then I have a solo show in New York in the fall next year. I don't remember which month. Um, and, uh, you know, group shows and other fun, small things mixed in. Excellent. Excellent. That's exciting. You're, yeah. People you know. are asking what I'm doing in 2025. And I'm like, what if I, I don't even know, like, <laughs> I don't want to promise anything. Like I just need oh, to a show at GR2, the, the, the living room show. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was <laughs> showing Eric again, 2025. Um, Excellent. Oh, yeah. that's a long time away. No, I'm kidding. All good. <laughs> we have, we have I, a skate, we have a skateboard deck and glass cups coming out. Right. Let's see how those go. <laughs> cups and skateboards coming out from GR. And then I think, mm -hmm decorative pillows from portland i need to get on that um but i've been trying to say no to more things 
because I said yes to everything for a long time. And uh, it was very stressful. And I'm at a place where I'm able to be like, you know what, I really don't need that project, or I don't need to say yes to every single thing. So I, I did three solo shows in one year once. Mm-hmm. And uh, I realized that was insane. Yeah. Uh, and then I didn't have time to do my own work. I've been drawing in my sketchbooks. We've published sketchbook number six, but seven's been sitting there for two years because I've been doing so many shows and other projects. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to say no. So I have time to fill out sketchbook number seven anyways. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of people come in with offers and I'm like, you know, it would be a cool thing, but like, I'm not going to do it. Uh, my, my goal for this year was to find like non-productive hobbies and things I can do that aren't about art and aren't about showing and making money, which are completely opposite of what I've been on. Like I said, yes to everything I could deliver. I've never missed a deadline in my life, but, um, you know, sleeping and going on walks has been pretty good. Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) Yeah. So I've still got a lot of fun stuff coming up, but I, I've I've been learning to turn stuff down that um, maybe it's just not necessary. Because again, I I'm making art because I really like the process of making art, and I want to protect that. I never want to be making art just because I need to be seen in certain places and I need certain people to like it, or you know, I want to just be able to enjoy it. And if I can make a living wage while enjoying it, then it doesn't have to be the best, biggest projects ever. It just has to be something I can do without like getting too anxious or stressed or losing my mind or skipping meals or staying up late, you know, like I'm getting to that age where I'm like, health comes first. I know my mom's been saying it to me for years, but um, (laughs) yeah, you know, uh, the body's starting to fall apart. So I got to work a little harder. Oh yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of that, it's like, oh my God, body falling apart. You're worried about that at uh, believe it or not, Felicia's still in her twenties. Barely. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it it it, it yeah. <laughs> Body falling apart. Yeah, it gets a little worse later, but okay. So for well, those of um, oh, I'm sorry, you're saying? Oh, I was like, I I had a really stressful job. I loved it, my actual corporate job, but I was like on flights every other week. I was sleeping four hours a night. I was eating out. We were drinking so much for work. I stopped drinking on the weekends. Like I was sleeping in different time zones, and I was like in my early 20s cool I can do it but it took a really huge toll which was partially why I quit that job and I thought oh I'll sleep for like a month or two bounce back and I'll be good to go I slept for like eight nine hours a night for like eight months before I felt human again and Mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to not take that for granted where it's like oh it really does make a difference and it is important to kind of slow down do you think have you heard so like Felicia and I earlier were talking about things like Maybe are they trends? Can or tinned fish? Um, I said crudo, but you said that's been around. But have you heard more about people getting more sleep in the last like six months or a year? Like people actually talking about it? Because I feel like I've never really heard too much about it, and I'm starting to hear more about it. Like people talking about how much they sleep and how, you know, no one's saying oh, I sleep four hours. I'm hearing more people say I sleep seven, eight even nine hours and it's almost like a you know like a a proud thing and i've seen people say it on the news and i've heard athletes say it uh ceos and more like i've not ever heard it before until maybe in the last one year i'm not none of my friends are sleeping enough so Hmm. uh i haven't personally heard that more people are sleeping better but 
I, I've heard that. it. It just feels like a thing where people are saying, yeah, you sleep more and you actually are more productive because you slept more. I don't know. I'm more productive because I no longer have a nine to five where I draw at night. Now I'm able to work slower, but I can deliver at the same pace because I have more time. But uh, sleeping has just like I napping is a hobby. I think for me, I really like sleeping. And now that I'm in my, I control my own schedule. The one like gracious thing I granted myself when I quit my job was no more alarm clocks. I wake up when I wake up and then I'll work. Um, and it's really spoiled me. I'm worried that when my art career collapses and I go back to corporate life that I won't be able to like do someone else's schedule, but we'll deal with that when that happens. <laughs> Not while I'm working. You'll be all right. <laughs> Eric will keep me afloat. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. But, so, uh, we're about at an hour. Um, how can people find you, Felicia? I am on Instagram, uh, Felicia Chow, C-H-I-A-O. I usually show up right under Tyler, the creator, when you start typing Felicia. So that's that's fun. Um, and I show with Giant Robot, Nucleus Portland, and Harmon Collective. So I'll be showing at Harmon Collective in New York next year. And you can nice. find prints on Society6 or through the galleries. I have a map. Uh, I have a puzzle through Spin Master. I have a puzzle through the Magic Puzzle Company. I have a book through Paragon Press. You know, it's just stuff. There's all, it's all links in my Instagram, in my link tree. You can find it all there. Excellent. But I am not on Etsy or Redbubble or Pinterest. And if you see my stuff on any other sites, not mine. Do you? No, a lot of people steal and sell my work on other sites. So only mm. what's on my links is mine. Oh, yeah. wow. Eek. Yeah. Uh, well, welcome to the bootleg game. <laughs> you know, I, I see it as a sign of success. It certainly is. It certainly is. And I, uh, I, I, I've gotten into a habit of collecting my own bootlegs. It's, um, oh. yeah, it's, it's always kind of fun. I haven't done that, but a lot of them aren't even bootlegs in like a fun way. They just, took a low rest file and are selling it as prints. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. That sucks. Anyways. Eventually, maybe you're going to find a bootleg where you're like, oh, that was kind of a clever way to use my characters and work, and then you're going to draw it yourself and do it better. Right, Luke? Isn't that what Luke did? That's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> took I'm a bootleg and made your own work with it. That's smart. I'm waiting for the AI bootlegs. Oh, uh, yeah, I really want to see, because uh, I've seen people, there was a Reddit thread where someone was trying to train AI with my work, and they were asking people for help because it wasn't coming together. I think AI struggles more with traditional work and also the patterning and the way, because each of my drawings isn't perfectly the same because it's not digital. So when AI tries to do the repeats, it's like, it's just mush. So mm. I know in like a month, it'll advance and it'll get there. But I'd love to get like a bad AI version of my art and then draw it my way and then feed it back in and see what happens and what hellscape it turns into. <laughs> yeah, I haven't really fully thought out the AI thing yet. So we'll see. We'll see how let's see how it goes. But um anyways, I have to get back to work. Um, but I want thank you very much for uh being on this podcast. I hope it wasn't too painful for you. No, it's fine. Was this live? <laughs> <laughs>
it is live is it well, okay it's bad but you know there's like people now where it's like they said this on a podcast eight years ago uh and then people get canceled i don't think i don't think there's a cancelable thing no yeah i think i did we're good. too boring we're too vanilla right yeah, we are way too boring we are yeah. too, though i've i've talked a lot of shit about other uh, other artists on um on this podcast so I just want everyone to know, like, I'm a really good person. So <laughs> just in case, just in case. Me too. Me too. Thank We're you. all really good people. And like, don't Google our names. I'm a piece of shit, but that's okay. I, no, I, you're, I, you're I embrace good too. my, I, I, I rescued embrace my you. You're good too, Luke. I just fixed it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there it is. Cool. With the healing powers of Eric Nakamura. <laughs> I have, <laughs> I have been, much. you know. Uh, a wash of my you know, transgressions. So, but thank you very much for, for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. And until next time, until next time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks bye. So